0: All right, well, we're going to jump into uh, session two now. In session one, we talked about uh, freedom from guilt. Now, in session two, we're going to talk about freedom from the law and uh, living under God's grace and what that really looks like. So I want you to think of your favorite Old Testament person. Uh, Would it be uh, Samson or Esther or Abraham or David? whoever it might be, it's very interesting that uh, when the writer of Hebrews talks about these heroes of the faith, perhaps you're familiar with the heroes of the faith chapter in Hebrews, right there in the smack dab in the middle of this brilliant epistle. Um, The writer of Hebrews says that even though these Old Testament heroes shut the mouths of lions and were sawn in two and suffered and died, and, and we're so committed and so dedicated. Um, it says that we get this now it says we have something better. We have something better than they ever had. You know why we can afford to have something better? Because it's not about our commitment, it's not about our dedication. Uh, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God uh, was essentially in a swivel chair. Uh, and at certain points, he says, and I turned away from them, says the Lord, because they did not remain faithful. And a lot of us, even though we live on this side of the cross, even though we live under a new covenant of grace, we're relating to God like he's in some sort of barbershop chair spinning round and round and round. Oh, you did your quiet time. Hello. Oh, you use the Lord's name in vain. See ya. Ah, you shared Christ with somebody. I'm back. And we've got God going round and round and round. And we Christians have called that fellowship. I'm going in and out, in and out of fellowship. Have you heard that? Well, the Bible never speaks of fellowship that way. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, you're in the fellowship. You have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we either are in Christ and have fellowship, or we're not in Christ and we don't have fellowship. But we are not bouncing in and out of fellowship. If we're going to sin, if we're going to make foolish choices, then we have to make those choices while we're still in fellowship with God. Romans calls it united with Christ. Corinthians calls it one spirit with Him. So how close is your Jesus? And when you go about... Seeking to make foolish choices when we choose sin. That's why it's not as fun anymore. Have you realized that sin is not as fun anymore since you're united with Christ? Like the moment that you try to make that work, just like the guy next door. I mean, the guy next door seems like he could lay awake nights dreaming of new ways to sin. And here you are on a Saturday night trying to figure out how to not. Man, you are a weirdo. You are not like the guy next door. You're an alien, the Bible says. You're an alien in this world. And so we find that sin doesn't pay off. And we find that no matter what, there's this union. There's this connection with Christ. And he says, I'll never leave you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So the reason that we have something better than any of these Old Testament believers is Is because of this new covenant. He says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time declares the Lord. I will put my laws where? In their minds. And I will put them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. It's not they better be my people. They should be my people. You better act like my people. No that's not what it is. It's automatic. That they will be my people. I will call them my people. I will secure them as my people. And I will forgive their wickedness and will will remember their sins no more. So I want you to think about what this new covenant is. It's a download. It is God's desires downloaded to your mind. God's desires downloaded to your heart. And complete and total forgiveness. So that we're not living from tablets of stone, we're living from what God himself has inscribed on our hearts. Now, even with that, there are some misconceptions. Many Christians find themselves saying, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we're not under the law, but the law is written on our heart. Not the case. People say, oh, yeah, 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 we're dead to the law, but the law is written on our heart. Okay, so you have uh, no pork sandwiches written on your heart? Have you got no uh, shrimp cocktail written on your heart? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't mean the dietary law. I just mean the Ten Commandments. Okay, so so you have no Friday night emails written on your heart? You have no Saturday yard work written on your heart? A lot of men are saying, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. But you see, my point is we're trying to figure out what's written on our hearts. And what I'm saying is this, Moses is not written on your heart. It is not 613 Jewish laws that are written on your heart. It's not even the 10 commandments because then what are we doing tossing the sabbath and calling it the nine commandments? Do you see what we've done? Jesus made it very clear. He said, "A new command I give you." Now, he he was referencing some great commands over here. You know, they said, "What's the what's the greatest command in the law?" Right? And he said the greatest commands in the law, you know what they were. Love your neighbor as yourself and love your God with all your, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But still, even those two, catch it now, even those two were the greatest commands in the law. But we're not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. So, what's written here? Jesus said, A new command I give you love others even as I have loved you. The Apostle John in 1 John, he writes and he says, These are his commands. All right, that's when you want to listen up, right? John's telling us, These are his commands. And he says, His commands are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to love others even as he has loved us. Sound familiar? This was the very same that Jesus taught as the new command. This, these laws of believe and love, these are what are written on our hearts. It's not the law of Moses that's written on our heart. It's the laws of believe in Jesus and love others even as he has loved us. And love covers a multitude of sins. Love takes care of a whole lot of problems. If you've been wondering, what is Christ doing in me? Number one would be love, loving people. So when we think about this, then it makes all the more sense. Jesus says something like, "Hmm, my yoke is easy. My burden is light and you'll find rest for your soul. But by the way, I'm requiring 613 things of you. But by the way, I've written commands that Israel could never keep put them on your heart. And now it's your job to do your best at them. So we begin to realize that the yoke is easy and the burden is light. First John says his commands are not burdensome. That's pretty incredible to think about. See, what if Christianity is easier than you think? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that planet Earth is easy. We suffer, we struggle, bad stuff happens, it's ugly. But Jesus said something was easy. So what if the the connection with him is easy? What if keeping it going is easy because he's done it? What if your cleansing is easy because it's finished? What if your forgiveness issue is easy to deal with because it's over? What if your union with Christ is is already taken care of? What if he who began a good work in you is going to carry you on to completion? What if it's easy to be with him? But see, the enemy doesn't want us to know that. The enemy wants to make it all complicated and weird. So what we're seeing is that there's a new covenant. And in fact, there's a dividing line of human history. Do you realize... That even though, you know, the publishers, they've gotten a hold of our Bible and they have put a divider page in there. You know, if you flip in your Bible to Matthew chapter one and then you flip back one page, what does it say right there before Matthew one in big block letters? What does it say? The New Testament. But do you realize that the New Testament, which, by the way, is the same word, the same concept as the new covenant? Do you realize that the New Testament and the New Covenant does not begin in Matthew 1 with baby Jesus in a manger? The New Covenant era, the New Covenant way of grace actually begins with Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. So it is not the birth of Jesus, it is the death of Jesus that brought in the new way. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it says, That uh, without a death, you can't have a covenant. Without blood, you can't have a covenant. Now, that's why even in the Old Covenant, even in the Old Testament with Moses, guess what happened, man? I mean, they killed animals, and then get this. They took the animal blood, and they sprinkled it all over the scroll, and then they sprinkled it all over the people. Now, that's a church service I'm willing to miss. Or maybe you want to at least bring a poncho or something. Right? An umbrella? Something. But the point is, is that God always made it true that without blood, a covenant doesn't start. So for that very reason, it's not the birth of Jesus, but it is the death of Jesus, His shed blood, that brought in the new covenant way. So I want you to imagine that you try to pull a prodigal son routine. You know, you go to your mom and dad, you go to your parents, you say, hey, I was wondering if... um, I don't know, if I could enjoy life in the fast lane, if I could cash in on your will a little bit early, you know, before you die. Look, even if you could talk ma and pa into that one, the attorneys would nip that in the bud. That's not happening. You know why? It's not happening because in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when what? When somebody's died. It's got to be mom and dad dying for that inheritance to happen, for that will to go in force. Now you say, why in the world is this in the Bible? Well, it's genius. Because the word will is the same word as the word testament and covenant. Have you ever heard somebody call it their last will and testament? Right, that's where it comes from. Because the root is the same word, Last will, last covenant, last testament, it's all the same word. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, just like you don't cash in on a will until there's been a death, guess what? You don't cash in on a covenant until there's been a death. And that death is the death of Jesus. And so then you say, all right, well, I get it. So you're telling me I need to move the dividing line of human history because, see, the world says... I mean, look at what the world says. B.C. B.C. is before the birth of Christ, right? And then A.D. is, you know, in the year of our Lord. Bless you. In the year of our Lord, right? A.D. So the the world has divided human history uh, by the birth of Christ. Now, what I'm saying is we want to change all that. And B.C. is now before the cross, Right, and then AD is like an Italian term, like after Decross or something. <laughs> but you, you see, you see what I'm getting at here. It's a 33 year shift in our mentality. We're moving the dividing line of human history 33 years. Why? Well, I mean, you gotta see that it's really important because between the birth. And the death of Christ, that was still an era of law. That was still before the new covenant. Between the birth and death, Jesus was teaching people who were under the law. And so what you end up seeing is you end up seeing Moses 2.0 from Jesus. He takes the Moses standard and he raises the bar. So Jesus revealed the perfect and impossible standard of the law. He turned to them and he said, chop off body parts in your fight against sin. He said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, be perfect, and hey, you sell everything in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is that really how we enter the kingdom of heaven? By selling everything? Do you put all your stuff on eBay and then suddenly you're saved? It says he looked on the rich man and he loved him and then he told him to sell everything. What kind of love is that? That's some pretty tough love because, see, that guy was beating his chest thinking he was doing it all in the law. And so he takes the law standard and he raises the bar. You know, you have heard it said. Don't commit commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look, it's the same. Gouge out your eye. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than to go where? Hell. All right. Any Christians going to hell? No. Now, isn't it interesting that we teach, a lot of us out there, we teach Matthew 5 as a sweet passage for Christian growth. (laughs) And hell is threatened three times in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the law on steroids. Matthew 5 is Moses in your face. Matthew 5 is a perfect and impossible standard, and that's the whole point. You know, nobody survives Matthew 5. We can teach it as, you know, you're supposed to get this nice, warm, Italian feeling inside, like you've had a bowl of pasta when you're done with Matthew 5. But nobody gets there if they're honest. Defeat if you're honest. Hypocrisy if you're not. Because Matthew 5 says, Give to whoever asks of you without hesitation. Give them your money. Just give it all away. Just give it without hesitation. Cut off body parts. Uh, don't get angry or it's the same as murder. Don't look or it's the same as adultery. Be perfect. And if you haven't figured out what I mean, be perfect just like God. Who lives? Who survives? Matthew 5, that is the whole point. Beginning in verse 17 of that chapter, he says, none of the law is going away. It's staring us in the face until it's all accomplished. And then from there, he proceeds to show us what law really looks like so that we will choose grace. See, if you think law is watered down and palatable and doable, Why would you ever choose grace? You'd be like the rich man saying, I have done everything in the law since I was a young man. And so Jesus is helping them see reality that they need to stop beating their chest. And so his love is not patting them on the back. His love is showing them Moses 2.0. It's like the Olympic high jumpers. I mean, what happens in those high jumping events? Somebody jumps over the bar, then what do they do? They raise it, and then he jumps over that, and then what do they do? They raise it, and they keep raising it until it can't be done in order to see what the record is. And so Jesus is raising the bar to show them that no one can do it. Here's another sample. You have heard it said, don't murder. Now, where did they hear that? In the law, in Moses. You have heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. All right, has anybody been hanging out with the Sanhedrin lately? Okay, so in this passage, we see three threats of hell. We see talk about the Sanhedrin. There is also mention of animal sacrifice. If you are giving a sacrifice on the altar, anybody done that lately? Any animal sacrifices in your backyard? If you are giving a sacrifice on the altar and you're not right with your brother, go get right with your brother before you give your sacrifice. Who is he talking to? Jews. When? Before the cross. Why? To show them the perfect and impossible standard. Years ago, in the Vancouver Winter Olympics, uh, the ski racers, during their trials, during their practice trials, they were reaching speeds of 92 and 93 miles an hour as they went down the, the course, the, skiing, the ski course. And so, you know, the committee met, and they decided last minute that they were going to take the starting point on that mountain, and they were going to lower it. So that those skiers didn't reach those incredibly unsafe speeds. Do you realize what we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when Jesus is teaching the law? It's like he comes along, he takes the starting point on that mountain, he raises it to the highest peak, then he alone skis down in perfect fashion, he earns the gold medal. He hangs it around your neck and then he says, stay off that mountain, it'll kill you. And that mountain is Mount Sinai and the law kills. And so we don't need to fulfill the law, we need to recognize that Jesus fulfilled it. He did what we can't do and now he's warning us. The Bible says... Even of the Ten Commandments that we want to put on our courthouse walls and we fight for such things in public schools, we want the Oh, Oh, they've taken the Ten... Wait a minute. Why aren't we fighting for, like, empty tomb symbols? Why are we fighting for the Ten Commandments? Do you realize that in the book of Corinthians, Paul told these Greek people, he said that the Ten Commandments, the ministry that was engraved on stone is a ministry of condemnation and death. And that the ministry of the Spirit is greater and better. It's founded on better promises. It's superior. You know, even in Romans 7, we don't often pause to think about what the Apostle Paul was really saying. He's saying, I'm doing the very thing that I don't want to do. Do you remember this? What was he doing? He was coveting. He was coveting. In fact, he was experiencing coveting of every kind, it says. Now, what does covet mean? He was wanting other people's stuff. Maybe he wanted someone's wife. Maybe he wanted someone's belongings, someone's clothes. Isn't it interesting that at a devout Jew who was learned and studied and a scholar of the law, that he had a secret struggle with wanting other people's stuff, coveting of every kind. So what law was he trying to obey? Thou shalt not covet, which is one of the Ten Commandments. And you know what his solution is? Do you realize what his solution is? His answer to that problem is this. Apart from law, sin is dead. Which law was he talking about? Was it the sacrificial law? No. Was it the ceremonial law? No. Was it wardrobe restrictions? No. He was talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and he was saying, when I was under the Ten Commandments, I experienced sin of every kind, and I'm telling you that the answer is not the Ten Commandments. The answer is, apart from law, sin is dead, because I'm under grace, Grace teaches me to say no to sin for real. And in fact, the law actually, being under the law, excites sin. The Bible tells us the law came in so that sin might increase. Do you not find that interesting? The law came in so that sin might increase? Well, I want to, uh, basically what we're saying is, you know, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's me under the law. The real problem is not the law itself, but the people under the law. Look at this, Hebrews 8. It says, if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the covenant? No. God found fault with the people under the covenant. Now, let's think about that for a minute. I mean... What do rules and laws and regulations do to us? I want to do a little experiment with you tonight. For the next 10 seconds, I just want to put you under one law, okay? Here it is. Thou shalt not think about a purple leprechaun. Okay, ready? Go. All right. How's it going? Huh? You experiencing victory? Are you see, even now, as I speak, there are purple leprechauns left, right and center in your mind, and you cannot distinguish you cannot extinguish them from your mind, can you? Some of you are saying, no, no, I can do this, I can do this, but no, you can't. As time progresses, the purple leprechaun will take over. Now, let's examine this for a minute. It's a silly example, but did you not walk into this church this evening completely leprechaun free? You hadn't thought about lucky charms all day. And then I put you under one rule, and suddenly it's left, right, and center all over the place. Leprechauns, what shall you do? Miserable man that I am, who will rescue me? I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do. Do you see it? Under the law, sin is excited. What happened under prohibition? Do you remember when they outlawed alcohol? Do you realize sales soared? People were going out in international waters, doing their deals, coming back with illegal alcohol. People were going up into Canada on the black market, getting the alcohol so they could bring it down. And there was more alcohol sales during prohibition than when it wasn't happening. The law kills. The law, under the law, sin is inspired And so we see that basically the law is like a mirror. See, uh, a mirror is something that you use in the morning. And it's something that you use to see the dirt on your face, right? But you don't take the mirror off of the wall in order to scrub you and clean you. See, the mirror does its work. And then you turn and you wash your face with soap and water. So when we realized our need for jesus it was the law showing us i'm falling short of the glory of god i cannot live up to this standard and then we turn and we get forgiven and cleansed by jesus not by the law now how silly it would be for me to be forgiven and cleansed and then turn around and try to use the law in addition it makes no sense my my father died in a car accident in 1998 Uh, He was in Fairfax County Hospital for a night in a coma, died the next day. I want you to imagine that I'm up here, you know, I'm telling old stories about my dad and I've got a photo album I'm going through, flipping through, telling old stories and showing old photos. And then by some miracle, by some crazy miracle, my dad walks up on stage and is standing right next to me. And I just turn and I just keep looking through old photos and telling old stories. How absurd that would be. The reality, the real thing is here and I'm turning and I'm only looking at a shadow. You realize the Bible says that the law is only a shadow and the reality is Christ. So what are we doing arguing for a role of the shadow in our lives when we have the reality, Christ Jesus living in us? Amen. The law made no one perfect. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Do you realize that? The law was weak and useless because the law made nobody perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So are you looking to the better hope? Or are you expecting some new outcome from the law? You know, I recently, well, I guess it's been a long time now, but back in the day when uh, Mac laptops really hit the market and became more and more popular, I was into PCs, and yet here was this shiny new MacBook. It was silver, it was aluminum, and it was beautiful. And so there I was looking at the 16 different choices in Best Buy, the 16 different choices of PCs, and then the one MacBook. And just as I was about to go to the checkout counter with my PC in hand, well, this savvy salesperson about 16 years old, you you know the one I'm talking about. He got me with a savvy sales pitch, and here it was. He said, you know, you can buy the new MacBook, but you can put the old Windows operating system on it if you want, and it'll run. You can have both, benefit from both. And with that, I was sunk. I went to the checkout counter with MacBook in hand, purchased it, went home, and you know, the funniest thing happened. It worked. Like, it worked. It didn't crash. It was pretty stable, and I never even downloaded windows on it. But you see, we humans can be suckers for the sales pitch of compromise, compromising with a little blend of the old and the new. Some very, you know, well-known Christian scholars and teachers are saying we need a balance of law and grace, that we don't need the ceremonial law, we don't need the sacrificial law, we just need the moral law, and we'll mix the moral law with Jesus. Wait a minute, can't Jesus be my morality? Do I need ten things etched in stone, or do I need Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit? You see, what people are doing is they're fashioning a safety net out of nine laws. See, we'll ditch the Sabbath, we'll take the other nine, And here's your moral law, and we're going to keep you from sinning by fashioning a safety net out of nine laws. And God is saying, I want you to cut through that net, and I want you to walk the tightrope of grace in me and in me alone, because strangely, you will find your balance in Jesus Christ. And so, have you noticed there's nine fruit of the Spirit? We're trying to sew together nine laws. Yeah, if I just, if I avoid lying and stealing and adultery and murder, then, you know, it sounds like the victorious Christian life. (laughs) There's nine fruit of the Spirit. And if you get the one, you've got the nine. He is the one and he is the nine. So will you trust him? What do movie stores, maps, and public pay phones all have in common? They are obsolete, man. They're not around. It's hard to find them. It's the same way with the law. Hebrews 8 says this, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Anybody here have the iPhone 1 tonight? Any? Any iPhone 1s out there? Why not? There aren't any because of iPhone 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. Aren't we up to, behold, ladies and gentlemen, the iPhone 7 and the 7S and the 7 Plus. But you see that better technology has come along. Better technology replaces the former technology. It's based on better technology circuitry, better manufacturing. And in the same way, the new covenant is founded on better promises. Hebrews 8 says, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. So what should we conclude the way of grace is better. The way of law is not the way. The way of grace is superior. The way of the law is inferior. The way of, the, of grace is founded on better promises. The way of law only excites sin when I'm under it. I want you to imagine a fictitious conversation between Moses and Jesus. Okay? Imagine that they show up in the same setting. And Moses turns to Jesus and he says, Papers, please. Now what I mean by that is he's asking for a passport. He's asking for his lineage. He's asking for his heritage. Do you realize that Jesus would have no papers that would qualify him according to the law? A lot of people don't realize this, but this is one of the strongest arguments for abandoning the way of law... And grabbing hold of the way of grace. Jesus had no papers. See, the law required, according to Moses, the law required that if you were going to serve as a priest, you needed to be in the tribe of Levi. But Jesus was in the tribe of Judah, in the tribe of David. Guess how many people served as priests from the tribe of Judah? Zero. Zilch. None. It was illegal. So why did God do this? Why didn't God just say, hey, I'll make Jesus a Levite. He'll just be the next Levitical priest and he can change some stuff, but he'll be an add-on. You see, God wouldn't have it. He brought us the table turner, the renegade, the one who was turning furniture over in church. And so we see that it says this, why was there still need? You see the center of this screen here. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, that is the mystery man, the mystery priest, the mystery lineage. Not in the order of Aaron. Now look at it, here's the reason. For when there's a change of priesthood, there must be a change of the law. You know what this means? You cannot turn and call Jesus Christ your high priest... And then turn back and grab a little bit of Moses to go with your Jesus. Flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. Do you see that? Hebrews 7, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken, that is Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one, nobody has ever officiated at the altar It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses said nada about priests. And the whole point is a change of priesthood means a change of law. Now, I want you to think about this. Uh, Imagine you were driving down the road and uh, you, you see someone on the side of the road and, you know, you realize that they are dead. And they're dead from some sort of traffic violation. They've committed something uh, on the roadway there that's caused their car to be off to the side of the road, perhaps turned over, and they're dead. And the officer is there, and is he he writing a ticket? You don't really prosecute a corpse, do you? Because, you know, really that, that person is now dead to the law. The Bible says that we are dead to the law. That's why we'll never be prosecuted by the law. The Bible says, my, my, brethren and, my brothers and sisters, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. All right, let me stop there. What's our goal in talking about this? Why am I talking about this? Am I a law basher? Am I a law hater? Am I a disrespecter of God's law? Imagine this. Imagine I try to hike up Mount Everest. Now, if you know anything about Mount Everest, the chances of me getting to that peak are pretty slim. But I set out, me, myself, and I, with no help because I'm required to do it all alone, and I seek to... I seek to climb up Mount Everest and I don't make it. I get up, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a day or two or three into it and I tire and I fatigue and I'm out of energy and I'm done and I quit and I come back and I say, Everest is huge. There's no way. Now, did you just hear me bash Everest? Did I just denigrate Everest? Did I just disrespect Everest? No. In fact, I'm telling you, it is so high and so difficult that I can't do it. That's respect for Mount Everest. Do you see that we gracers, can I call you that? We gracers are the ones who truly respect God's law. Everybody else is just flirting. They're cherry picking. They're saying 613, uh, I'll take 10. Wait, tithing, I'll take 11. Wait, Sabbath. Sabbath. Eh, I'll take 10. And they're cherry picking from God's law, and that's not respecting God's law. God's law is 613 bony fingers staring us in the face saying, you can't do this so that we will turn out of respect for law and say, Jesus, I need you. And then we die to the law so that we might live for God. So what is the point of all this tonight? Man, I want to bear fruit for God. Don't you? You want to bear fruit? Do you realize the one and only way to bear fruit for God is by dying to the law? We died to the law. We're joined to another so that we might bear fruit. For the very first time, we could not bear fruit under the law. We can only bear fruit under God's grace. We can only bear fruit because we're joined to another. Now, I want to finish with this thought. Are you a Gentile? Yeah. If you're not a Jewish person, then God looks at you as a Gentile. Now, isn't it interesting? This will be my side note. I'm headed over here to the side. Isn't it interesting that the Gentiles, that's us, that the Gentiles were never even given the law? We got You know, people writing books and on radio and TV and all these preachers and teachers were debating law and grace and law and grace and law and grace. Most of the people debating this are Gentiles. And the Jews are just laughing at the whole thing. Yeah, like you're really keeping the law anyway. The law was never given to us. We were never even invited to the table of law. The book of Ephesians said we had no hope We had no God. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We had no covenants and no promise. But God intervened and he gave us the new covenant. And for us, the new covenant is the one and only covenant. So what are we doing flirting with a covenant that we were never invited to? So when a Jewish person comes to Christ, they die to the law. And they are reborn in Jesus Christ under grace. When a Gentile comes to the Lord, they die to the requirement of the law, which was written on their conscience, which was killing them. And they are now experiencing the freedom of God's grace. But we Gentiles were never given the tablets of stone. We were never given the 613. We were never under the law to begin with. So for the Gentile, it's our conscience that was killing us. For the Jew, it's the law that was killing us. But either way, we needed Jesus, and now he's all we need. He is our everything. Let's stop there. I want to pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit. We thank you for the clarity of it, that you have a singular message for us. Jesus plus nothing else have a singular message for us Christ in us our only hope of glory you have one message for us that it's all about you and what you've done and what you're doing in and through us father we think you're doing a fantastic job running the universe and wow the gospel it is amazing we thank you for Jesus in his name we pray amen